Hello and welcome to Gripping in the Filth with me, Tom Sharp. This is an invertebrate podcast. Now, some of our episodes are species-based or based around a certain family or order of animals or even based around a theme like transformation or fear. This episode is habitat-based. In this episode, we're going to look at the seaside, thinking about the seaside as an invertebrate habitat and the way life has adapted to this environment. We'll have a chance to subdivide the beach, discovering how life has adapted to different zones within the beach. We're going to learn about limpets and whelks. We're going to have a generally lovely beachy old time. But this seaside discussion is going to be framed around the notion of exploration and learning. Explore. That's an interesting word. It's a word to do with physical movement through a space, often unfamiliar space, but also a word to do with inquiry and questioning. Today on the podcast, I speak to the fantastic writer and environmentalist Heather Buttervent. Speaking to Heather, she helped me to better understand the beach for what it is, demystifying the seaside habitat and generally sharing her wonderful beachy expertise. We'll consider how we teach children about the outdoors and learn about Heather's new book, Beach Explorer. statement of fact that children or anyone knowing and understanding and appreciating the natural world is a good thing. How can it not be? Whether or not we want our lives to be dedicated to environmentalism or zoology, a rich set of experiences and an understanding of wild spaces can only be a positive thing. Forest schools, increasing in popularity, give school children the chance to interact with the wild world, to be among leaf and mud and rain. Children come to this learning differently, Some associate the outdoors with dirtiness and are fearful of it. They're used to more controlled, more sterile environments, or or they're just unfamiliar with it. And that's understandable, and everyone's circumstance is different. How then do we structure their learning and guide them and allow them to enjoy and understand the outdoors? And for those who do enjoy the outdoors and are open to it, how best do we teach about the unfamiliar lives and the geological ideas and the interconnectedness of the natural world within the context of a forest school? What set of tools do the children need to understand this environment, to decode it? To roughly quote our old mate Bloom's taxonomy, how do we help children to understand, apply, analyse, evaluate and create within outdoor learning? The wild has its own language, one you can learn to read. In her new book, The Wonderful Beach Explorer, within, obviously, the beach context, Heather has created a field guide which facilitates learning and exploration. Now, if you're not particularly interested in educating children, absolutely fine. There's lots of beachy stuff in this episode and there's lots of invertebrate stuff in this episode. But there is a certain framing around this idea of education and of exposing children to these wild ideas. Whatever you're interested in, it's a smash. Let's meet Heather. Hi, Heather. How are you today? Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me along. Yeah, I'm fine here in sunny Cornwall. An absolute pleasure. And, um, well... Not the day this comes out, but World Ocean Day today, so I'm sure a, a very special day for yourself. It is. Um, obviously, in Cornwall, we, we're completely surrounded by sea, so the, the oceans are very important. But I spend a lot of my time out on the beach, as you know, looking looking particularly in rock pools, but also doing all sorts of other marine conservation volunteering. Well, let's get into that then. So, I mean, this is an invertebrate podcast, but we're talking about kind of a, a habitat today. Um, and a way with it, with engaging with that habitat. But what is your relationship with nature and 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 the marine environment? I think I grew up uh, with with a beach on my doorstep, which is I know very very lucky. You don't realise how lucky you are when you're little. Uh, so it was always very much my world and my playground. It was where I went with my friends and poked around in rock pools and discovered anemones and found huge twisting barnacles washed up on the shore. And it's for me, it was always that that place of inspiration and awe with quite amazing things to be found and lots of hidden secrets. And in Cornwall, because it was we had a lot of mining history, we had like an old mine that opened onto the beach. And as a as a child, I think it was mysterious and fascinating. And frankly, as an adult, it's mysterious and fascinating. There's the more you know about it, the more you discover, the more you want to know. 
And I, I keep finding more things within that environment wherever I go. So, so th- that's my relationship with the beach, I think, just that great joy of exploring it. It, it seems like for many people who are into nature, who are into wildlife, there is that fascination that begins in childhood. So would you say you've got particularly strong childhood memories of the seaside? Absolutely. I mean, a lot of a lot of my childhood memories are at the seaside and in my little red wellies. Those are the ones I remember the most, although I must have had many, many pairs of wellies as I grew up. For a lot of naturalists, it is about those that first time you hold a starfish in your hand or or you see a, a fish dart into the into the back of a rock pool. And those sorts of memories are really important for me. And I think that's that's what's brought me to giving quite a lot of my time to taking groups of children out on the shore and taking adults out as well to discover what's there with our local wildlife trust um and also to writing about it and um or come on to talk about my books but you know my new book beach explorer is really this toolkit for for getting kids out there to discover things for themselves hands-on it's not telling them what to do but giving them all the information and ideas they need to feel confident to do it. Yeah, well, toolkit's a great word for it. Let's 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 talk about that a bit then. So my my familiarity with with you as a as a naturalist comes through Rockpool Extraordinary Encounters Between the Tides, which is a book you wrote um, about the Rockpool environment, about the animals that live there, which was a great solace to me. I read it. Um, I took the the children away for a, a residential trip to PGL and every evening when wow. I sort of got 20 minutes to myself my escape was was Rockpool extraordinary encounters between the tides um so so thank you for that but yeah you've also written this this wonderful new book Beach Explorer 50 things to see and discover which is a gorgeous little book for kids yeah I wanted to talk about that title Beach Explorer so you know you didn't call this book all about the beach or fun on the beach you you've called it a beach explorer and that seems to me to describe the ideal reader of the book or an aspect of that reader which the book is designed to cultivate so I wondered why why explorer yeah I think that word cultivate is just right Tom um this this book was so important to me um I I have a lot of interaction with with children but I know even here in a coastal environment there are a lot of children who don't get out in nature and there are children right here in Cornwall who who never go to the beach strange as that may sound um and I hear a lot of parents teachers others saying they want to they want to give the children those opportunities they don't really know how don't really know what they're looking at and children are unless they've had that experience before don't know how to do things um, so what I wanted to create was, like I said, it's toolkit and it's 50 hands-on activities. Um, it's all about engaging with nature, connecting, feeling it, getting, getting right in there with, with the animals, with the rock pools, with, with the whole environment on the beach and discovering it so that children can discover it for themselves through, through play and through exploration, which to, my mind and in my experience is how children learn pretty much everything you can you can tell them things you could like you can tell anyone things you know, we're all just humans you can you can have somebody tell you things but unless you have seen and discovered it for yourself and feel like it's your own you you don't really retain it so well it doesn't mean so much um Absolutely. and i really love the idea of of having a little talk that kids can go out with and be outdoors and explore and and very much make the beach theirs. One thing that in in reading it struck me immediately and, and sort of surprised me that it struck me. It was a surprise that it was a surprise that it surprised me, if that makes sense. Was that the first page and the activities on the first page were about sand, which is such an obvious thing when you get right down to it, because that is the that is the beach, right? To a to a large degree. Were you keen that the book be about beaches? as opposed to the wildlife of the beach, per se? Yeah, I, I think I, I thought about it when I was writing the book, and it very much, I want I want the whole experience of the beach to make sense to a child. I think if, if you just look at a crab and see it as a crab, you, you don't really understand that whole wonder of the environment that it's living in. 
Um, so for me, there were two things. It's, it's the putting across the interconnectedness of everything, the way that the sand and the tides and the whole the whole feel and geology of the beach relates into the rock pools, relates into those animals' lives. Um, but also the reason was that, that there's a lot about how the beach is made that is just too good to miss. It's so, it's brilliant for kids on all of this. So I think we, we miss a lot in nature and wildlife study if we don't appreciate the world that the plants and the animals live in, the struggles they're facing, what's happening around them. And, and children as explorers on the beach need to feel really confident, have that sense of belonging. So they, they need to, they need to feel that they, they know what the sea's doing, what the tides, what the tides are, why it's happening, how the sand has formed, what the cliffs are made of. Um, it, it's all part of that experience of being confident in that environment. Um, but like I say, beaches are also just amazing in themselves. They formed over millions and millions of years. All those rocks have been made and broken. Some of them being forced up from volcanoes. Um, plates have been moving around and cracking. You've got seas rising and falling. You've got ancient animals that are dying and becoming fossils. And all of these things are revealed on the beach um, in, in a way that you can see and touch and observe. And I think it would be it would be a real shame for kids to visit the beach, even as a, as a avid rock pool. It would be a shame to visit the beach and not to look at not to look at that whole environment. Well, let's talk about the whole environment then, because I mean this is an invertebrate podcast, and so let's let's kind of use the environment as a way to a way into talking about invertebrates more specifically. If you're enjoying Grubbing in the Filth, a review on a podcast provider is a lovely thing. Moreover, a follow on Twitter at GITF Podcast or Instagram at Grubbing in the Filth is really heartening. Thank you. In your in your book Rockpool, you you divide the, the book up into sections and it's it's subdivided into different sections of the shore, and then within those sections into these little chapters concerning the animals that, that live in those spaces. Would it be okay to give us an overview of the beach, kind of with that in mind? And tell us what invertebrates live within these different stages of the beach. Sure. So, so Rockpool, as you know, is a much more grown-up book. It's nature writing. It's taking that journey down through the shore. Um, and the way the beach works is, is really all about these zones because the rock pools are only there. They only exist as, as rock pools, as a separate environment to the sea because of the tides. Um, and as you know, that the tides are like great big bulges that are pulled through the sea and, and operate like a big wave that travels across the entire globe twice a day, um, caused by the, the gravity of the, the sun and the moon combined. And what that translates into on the beach is that you have the tide coming in and out twice a day. And on our shores in Britain, we have really big tides and those tides vary. So sometimes we have what we call spring tides where the, the tides are much bigger. So that means the tide comes in further and it goes out further. And then we have neap tides where the tide comes in a little bit and it goes out a little bit, but nothing like as much and everything in between. And that's a constant cycle that we go through really a couple of times a month of, of those changes. So the upper shore is the area between, as far as I'm defining it, there are different definitions, but as far as I'm defining it, the upper shore is the the area between the very highest of those high tides, the point that the sea will come into on those big, stormy, huge spring tides, and the point that it will reach on the smaller, neap tides. And that zone is is covered by the sea some of the time, not all of it. Um, the sea comes and goes, and you have a few very specialist creatures that have managed to survive in conditions, and they are invertebrates, don't worry, uh, they are, um, that have managed to survive in these conditions where they are out of the water for enormous amounts of time, which means they can dry out, which is every sea creature's worst enemy. They're exposed to the sun, the wind, um, differences in the amount of salt in their environment. It can be very salty, or you can have fresh water flowing through as streams come through, or rainfalls. And you have things like um, sand hoppers, um, they look like fleas, but are actually actually little crustaceans. And, and they burrow down into the sand under the seaweed and pop up to eat detritus, things that have been washed up, seaweeds and other, other things that have been washed up on, with the tides. 
and they can they can jump incredibly high compared to their compared to their body size, just like just like fleas do on land. Um, you've got certain animals that are really well adapted. I think we'll talk about limpets in a minute, but they they can live right at that edge where not much else can. Then you've got the midshore, which is rock pools, um, the the bit that is submerged every day by the tide. So it's in a regular rhythm, but it's not constantly underwater. Um, then you, as you move down the shore, you get to the lower shore. So the midshore, you've got um, all sorts of different sea creatures that are perfectly adapted to rock pools. They're pretty hardy. They can cope with the temperatures going up and down as the pools are exposed during the day, the differences in oxygen and salt. So you've got things like prawns, um, cushioned starfish, anemones, and they've all got these really special adaptations to make sure that they can survive there. And it gives them advantages because most of the creatures that live out at sea need really constant levels of salt, fairly constant temperatures, um, all those sorts of things. And they can't really cope in the rock pools. If they get stranded there, they'll probably die. Um, whereas the animals that you find in the rock pools, they haven't just been washed in there. They have decided to be there. That is that is their perfect environment. And then as you go down to the lower shore, you are in an area which is only exposed on the very lowest tides. And those areas are underwater pretty much all of the time. And once you get there, you start to be in a zone where you're almost walking underwater, where you could find anything and that's where you start to find more variety of species, a great big diversity of things from crabs, lobsters even, sea slugs, sea squirts, sponges, all these very, very strange to us animals that are, again, perfectly adapted to their environment, but you don't find on land generally at all. I love that contradiction, the sort of mental contradiction in my head at least, that that the creatures that are closer to us and further from the sea, the sea that we think of as this place of otherness and this place of challenge, those creatures in the middle, we can almost define as, as hardier in some respects or, or more specialised. Whereas from our perspective, the further from the land you get uh, would mirror the challenge, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's funny, as, as we go down the shore, we feel like we're stepping to the alien environment as you come up the shore You've got more variety of things and you see more familiar animals as well, because, you know, at the top of the shore, at that upper shore zone, you, you can sometimes find, you know, I've, I've seen sparrows feeding off bits of algae or invertebrates in the in the rock pools. You, you sometimes find a frog or a toad or a newt that's spawning <laughs> in slightly the wrong place. And, you know, it's there's, it's 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 a frontier between that land and the sea, the beach. And as you move down further down, you're entering that real underwater world. Well, frontier is a great word for it. Let's let's talk about one of those those frontier creatures. So, one creature that I read about in Rockpool, um, which has subsequently thrilled me in visiting beaches. Not that I've had much opportunity to do that. Um, is the limpet? Now, limpets are invertebrates, which, like quite a few of these shore animals, are kind of part of the scenery. And shells or creatures that live in shells have almost become detached from. The notion of them as living creatures because of the shell as a kind of decorative item it's they've become part of the furniture almost but in reading your book i i was sort of treated to the idea of a limpet as a more dynamic creature could you shed some light on on the lives of limpets please yeah it's it's, it's interesting because limpets limpets if you've ever seen a limpet they 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 are like an upturned cone shape they have a very thick shell, a very solid animal, and they're yellow, browns, greys, mottled colour, which makes them normally really blend in with the rock. And they often have other things growing on them, which means they really do look like they're, they're part of the rock on the on the seashore. And when you find a limpet, um, it will pretty much always be out of the water on a rock and stuck solidly to it, not moving, not doing anything. Um, so the idea of them as a dynamic creature is is really baffling, I think, when you first see a limpet. Um, but they are a type of snail, uh, although their shell looks quite different to our land snails. They're a type of snail. They're a gastropod. And 
like our garden snails, they have little tentacles that they use to feel their world with, that they stick out from under their their shell. They have a, a big, strong, muscular foot that they use to anchor themselves to the rock. And every time the tide comes in, the limpets spring to life. The reason that they don't move at all during the day when the tide's out is that they cannot afford to dry out. Even a little bit of air getting into their shell will probably kill them. It will dry the whole body of the limpet out and they can't have it. So every time the tide comes in, they lift that shell off the rock and they they head out across the rock, leaving a slime trail behind them. And they use something called their, their radula, which is what a lot of snails have to feed with. It's, it's almost like a sore tongue organ. And their, their radula is coated with teeth in, in a material which is the strongest material, biological material at least known to man, called gothite. And it's so strong that it can... Yeah, so it can, it's so strong, it can chip off bits of rock as it goes. And this, the, this thing is almost like a sort of chainsaw. It goes round and round and round, with the, the teeth scouring the rock. And it picks off little bits of algae, which it eats. And often, if you can find a, a softish rock that it's been feeding on, you'll find these little zigzag patterns left on the rock. Because as the as the limpet's gone, it's scoured that rock so closely you can see where it's eating. Um, and when it goes back, when the when the tide when the tide goes out again, it needs to return, ideally to exactly the same place it was in. It might be able to settle somewhere else, but ideally they go back to the same place every time. They follow their little slime trail and the chemicals that are left in it, I've seen to. They get back to the same groove where they were before, the same spot, and they swing their shell left and right round them, like, like sort of twirling petticoats on, on a dancer. And they swing those right round and grind them down against the rock. And over time, limpets actually, actually scour out a perfectly shaped groove for the size of their shell in the rock, which fits them perfectly. And that means that no air can get under the edge of their shell when the tide goes out. They have this perfect fit, and with their very strong suction on their foot, they can hold themselves in place. Um, another limpet fact, just because I, I love limpets and, and I, I could talk all day about limpets, but um, my, my other favourite fact, uh, limpets live maybe around 10 years, possibly more, um, but, they, but they, they start off, they all start off as male. Every, every young limpet starts off becoming a male, and as they grow bigger and bigger and bigger, after sort of three years or so, they will become female. And that's my favourite limpet fact. It's a lovely limpet fact. You can now make donations to help support the running of Rubbing in the Film. If you want to show your support and offset the running costs of the podcast, visit buymeacoffee.com slash grubbingcast. There, a donation can be made quickly and easily, with the option to write a little message if you so wish. Any donations are hugely appreciated, so thank you. Again, that's buymeacoffee.com slash grubbingcast. We're talking about kids discovering the beach, and this, this applies to adults as well. But the idea of seeing marks on a rock and then being able to decode that and understand what that is, and that, that sense of discovery, that sense of, of decoding, I think as a child would have appealed to me, you know, a, a sort of detective, an explorer, like you say on the shoreline yes. and I, I know we have a we, we both know Elizabeth Mills uh, of Marine Mumbles yes. we've spoken on this podcast um the fabulous Elizabeth Mills oh yes. the real deal lives and breathes the rock pool a, a, a really passionate rock pooler uh, and, and communicator so so do look her up but when I talked to her we talked about the the muddy sort of tubules you find on the beach uh, which she explained are lugworm casts and like these grooves left on the rock, the beach is littered with objects that feel inexplicable but are common and which have fascinating stories behind them. Um, and I was I was out on Margate Beach semi-recently, uh, my first visit to the beach in over a year on account of what's been going on. Um, and there were these objects littering the beach and, and one, one such object was a, a kind of papery clutch of what appeared to be opened pouches. Um, 
So I looked this up and discovered it's a it's what's left of a whelk's egg sac. Um, and whelk's again, whelk is one of those words, a bit like limpet. I think that barnacle, whelk, limpet, these are words that everyone knows, but but maybe don't have much insight into the life of what that thing is. So could you give us a little a little whelk overview? Ah, whelks. I yes, I, I love whelks. And um just what you're saying, the, the idea of going to the beach and finding finding unexpected things. Hmm. I think that's very much what I, I love doing and what, what the book's about, all these activities are about getting out there and making your own discoveries because you never know what's going to turn up. And whelk eggs is one of those things. Some beaches at some times of the year the whole strand line can be covered in these little papery balls, can't it? And it's, it, it is, it is fascinating. Um, so the those those big egg sac balls are are the eggs of the common whelk, and the common whelk is one of our biggest snails, basically our biggest marine snails. Um, I, I don't have overly large hands, but a, a fully grown common whelk will pretty much fill my hand um, to give you an idea of size. But all whelks look like look like a garden snail, but with a big tall spire coming off them. Okay, so they've got a big pointy pointy shell. And um, and what really makes them whelks, as opposed to anything else, if you turn that shell over and look into the opening of it, they've got a rounded opening, and that's where you would see the s- snail inside if it's alive, where the whelk would live. Um, and if they are, they're beautiful creatures. They're all speckledy, amazing colours. Um, but if you look in that opening, it's rounded, and it has a part that juts out with a deep canal, a groove in it. And that is where... The radula goes. We talked about the radula with limpets and that they use theirs for scouring bits of seaweed off the rock. Um, what the whelks that lay those eggs and the dog whelks that we find on the shore, they're the more common species of whelk you'll see on the shore, the, the smaller dog whelk. Um, they, they use their radulas a little differently. So whelks are carnivores. We think of snails as eating, you know, eating the cabbages or whatever, don't we? But, but um, a lot of a lot of marine snails and slugs are carnivores, and they're kind of kind of gruesome. There are some whelks, like the netted dog whelk, that go around, and they're like the vultures of the shore. They clean up all the carrion, if you like, all the all the dead dead creatures. So if you've got a dead crab, the the netted dog whelks can smell it from across the shore, and they'll all. Very slowly, you have to speed up your images if you're imagining it, but they, they all congregate on, on the dead things. Um, whereas the dog whelk, the most common whelk on the shore, really uh, is a predator and probably one of the most ferocious predators on the shore when you think about it. So you don't want to be a limpet when the dog whelk's around. The dog whelk uh, will come up to a limpet or a mussel or another another kind of um, sea snail or bivalve, and it will climb onto its back and it will need to get a good grip on there and it pokes its radula out through that long groove underneath its shell and it dissolves, drills into that shell until it makes a perfectly round hole in the shell. And then using its radula, it pumps out basically stomach juices it pumps out its acids into the into the victim into the limpet and dissolves the body of the creature which it then sucks back in like it's using a straw it's, it uses radula to suck up the the contents of the limpet like it's soup so pretty gruesome i hope no one's eating while they're listening to this certainly not certainly not eating um oh, i don't know i'm going with that comment that was a, a weird start of a sentence but this is this is the wonderful thing, right? Because you've got these, like you mentioned earlier about making this learning real for people. You've got this papery egg sac, and from from that relatively common thing to see, that that that's your that's your way in. That's your kind of your key to discovering these creatures that otherwise would feel quite abstract. A, a creature that is a bit less abstract, a creature that is well known and and it's it's infamous. It's almost I describe the the crab as the ambassador of the seashore, but. But perhaps kind of alongside the crab, the starfish is, is something that is synonymous with the seaside. But perhaps 
more so than the crab, it's it's an animal that we can forget are animals. They are a bit like yeah. the limpet, part of the scenery. They're sort of when kids draw pictures of the beach, uh, a starfish or a sea star, whatever you want to call it, it's it's a decoration, right? And what I loved in Beach Explorer is that you push the reader to question the way that a starfish experiences the world, and you, in doing so, kind of prove and focus on the fact that it is this living creature. So given that a starfish so clearly experiences the world in a very different way to the reader, could you give us a sense of how do starfish interact with the world? For sure. And starfish are, I think, the creature that if if I'm running an event and I ask people what they most want to find, most people will always say starfish. Um, a, A lot of, I think a lot of people have been to a beach, but and dreamt of seeing a starfish and never found one so so yeah it's it's really important to know where and how to look for these things and i i give a lot of advice on that in the book and but starfish they they look like they don't really move because their their limbs are very stiff they hold them quite stiffly and um what they actually do is pump them full of water instead of blood they use seawater to as their circulation and they use hydraulic motion so use the seawater to move move things about and instead of moving those arms they have underneath them underneath each arm they'll have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of little tube feet little suckers that that move about independently or together um, which is interesting and they they allow the starfish to move along and those little tube feet can explore they can move and they walk the starfish along. So a starfish, when it's moving, actually can move quite fast. But it, it's rather like a duck on the water. That what you see on the surface is just this starfish gliding along. If you turn it upside down, it's it's incredible to see actually all these tiny tube feet all working, working away. Um, so the starfish experience the world partly through those tube feet, um, which are sensitive to touch. Um, they kind of have it's hard to describe them as eyes because they're not really eyes the way that we that we understand it but they are quite simple light receptors but they have they have equivalent to eyes in the ends of their arms and each arm has some right. some light receptors um and they they can use those to sense things but their sense of smell is really good and starfish like to eat and i'm afraid they eat in a very similar way to the dog whelk if you like um they, they they actually position themselves over their prey. They're they're voracious carnivores, starfish. People don't realise people are pretty pretty little things. So <laughs> they're voracious predators. So they will come and position themselves over their prey, stand up on those those five arms, and what they do is to push their stomach out and engulf their prey with their stomach and digest it, and then pull everything back in. And they actually turn their stomach inside out to do that, which is which is completely completely impossible for us to understand um but but it works for them and it's very very effective um so as as well as as well as all that um a fact that pe- a lot of people know about starfish is that they don't have a brain so they don't have they don't have a central brain in this in an organ in the sense that we do what they have is around that central part of the body that where the arms come off in that disc they have a ring of of a nervous system um, which which can receive and and send out signals. But a, a lot of what happens happens in the arms, and there's a, there seems to be a lead arm that's in control of the starfish. It's like if you sort of your right leg is in charge of you today, and it decides if you're going to go out for a walk. It's it's quite it's a very very different experience um obviously not all of these things are things that kids will be able to work out for themselves looking at a starfish on the shore but you can certainly see how a starfish responds to touch all those tube feet moving um and and yeah i i think the, the other fact that i get kids to explore in the book i won't i won't give too much away but i get kids to try and work out where a starfish's mouth is um and where it's where its bottom is um because it's it's not it's not very obvious when you have an animal with five arms how that how that works but it's it's quite obvious once you've got one in your hand you have a really close look 
Well, there's a little tease. Uh, one thing that I've been thinking a lot about recently, and I think is valuable, about the sort of decentralising our our sense of ourselves as being normal, right? So we we consider mm. ourselves the normal animal, and any other animal is deviating from that norm. Whereas actually, a starfish is is every it, it's its way of life is every bit as valid as our own. I wondered what value do you think there is in in a child trying to understand or a person trying to understand the perspective of another animal, considering how another animal understands and interacts with its surroundings? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. And I, I completely agree that, that generally in life, and it's, it's very easy to do when we're caught up in our human world to see animals as something that's other and and not to see ourselves as animals and, and therefore not to see all those similarities and differences that, that, are, that are there in how we interact with the world. And for me, there's always a massive benefit in, in getting out and really looking closely at nature and you know seeking to understand it to to just just observe it and spend time looking at things there's a big benefit in that that being in the natural world in the joy of meeting an animal on its own terms and really stopping to look at it for what it is not for what our imaginations say it should be um obviously there are great benefits in just getting out there in terms of mood mental health that that feeling of belonging in the world that I think I think can, can often go go a bit missing when we are under a lot of pressure in the human world um but also it is that developing empathy for animals is all about and for plants for that matter is all about looking really closely at them being with them taking the time to appreciate what's different about them but also how similar we are that you know the starfish is just as driven by by hunger as we are about this time of day you know it's 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 um it's very much looking when you look closely you discover that actually there's so much that we have in common with even the most alien of animals that they they too sort of have predators that they're trying to avoid that they they have their they have problems and difficulties in their world that they have to overcome that they're struggling against, whether it's tides coming in and drying out, whether it's predators, um, whether it's changing changing salinity. Um, you know, just stopping and looking at something like an anemone can can make you see how how it actually moves and the tentacles emerge, and that there are decisions being made there about when to when to come out, when how to move, how to how to reach for a, a fly that's fallen into the water, or whatever it is. Um, and I think when we when we take that time, we care more about about the world generally, about about nature, about invertebrates in particular, which which, like you say, it's it's kind of hard sometimes to appreciate these things as animals until we look that closely. And it's it's also about it's also about the, the, the science and the discovery of it. Of really, it's only when we stop and really appreciate the animals on their own terms that we start to realise how brilliantly adapted they are and why and how those things relate to our own lives. So, you know, if a child's looking at a crab really closely, or an adult for that matter, they will, they will understand for themselves why the crab walks sideways. And it's, it's something we all know crabs walk sideways, but why? Is, is it just that they choose to do it? You look at the way their, their legs are jointed, the way their knees work, the way they're angled, and you can see it would be really awkward for that crab to shuffle forwards. They're jointed to move sideways. And that's that's why. But it's only by looking that you can really see and appreciate that. Um, and I think scientists are and engineers are increasingly looking to the natural world and making discoveries when when they stop and look at these things that can be applied to the human world. And I think a lot of people now know now about shark skin technology um, and things that are used in swimsuits. Um, but, you know, we're, we're developing things like paints to go on boats that replicate shark skin because although a shark skin is very rough, it can be, it can be um, extremely hydrodynamic. And there are all sorts of, all sorts of other things as well that we, we think that things like lugworms you were talking about earlier, um, the, the blood of, 
of lugworms is incredibly efficient at transporting oxygen. And um, there's already been some research into using lugworm blood for, for, um, for, for blood for humans, for transplants, especially in organ transplant patients who, who need high levels of oxygen to, to survive um, an organ transplant. Um, so it's the, the, whole, the whole world is out there. And if we, if we take the time to appreciate the value of the animals as themselves, we can learn things which apply to our own lives. I think that's beautifully put. You mentioned you mentioned their crabs and the observation of crabs. And I mentioned crabs earlier. I described them as kind of these these ambassadors. It surprised me when you said that starfish are the one that that people want to see. I, I would have thought that the crab is is the is the great goal, the kind of common goal of all all rock poolers. Yeah, pe- people people say people want to see crabs, but I think they know they're going to see crabs. If, if you come right. out on the beach for rock pooling, people sort of know that they'll probably see a crab. But it's it's those more elusive creatures that I think people 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 hope to see. Sure, starfish. I mean, it's, it's starfish is such a it, it almost imitates a treasure, right? But a, a crab, I wondered, you know, you are someone who has, has spent a lot of time taking people out to the shore, taking groups of children down to the shore. And I think crabs are charming animals. They've got little beady eyes and they shuffle about and they're, they're gorgeous creatures. But they're also, they have pincers, they, which can imply a kind of danger. They are a bit spidery. Young people are often very cautious of that. Yeah, cra- crabs crabs aren't your sort of classic cuddly children's toy, are they? <laughs> so... so... So yeah, and it is it is very otherworldly. It's it's a it's a big step for Well you, you say that, but I do think that crabs are quite well represented in, in children's media. There's a lot of crabs knocking about. You know, you've got your, your little mermaid crab, you've got your you've got various crabs doing various crabby things in children's literature and in picture books yeah. and things. Um so they're a very familiar animal, right? Yeah. But familiar but not so cuddly. It's like you say, they they look a bit like a spider, they've got hard shell. Um however, as as you also know, Every child is different, mm-hmm. and really quite un- it's quite unpredictable which children will will be very confident in approaching a new animal like that, and which ones will be terrified to start with. Um, what I find though is that the fascination is universal, even if the initial reaction is like, "Oh my god, what's that?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> the the you know, as 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 humans, we're we're curious, and something very different like that, even something that provokes a slightly negative reaction to start with, um, that comes from a place of interest. And I think, yes, yes, every child's different, and some children will just love the idea and can't wait to get in there. And you have to sort of work to keep, get them to keep their hands off the crabs a little bit, so they're not gonna not gonna cause any damage. And it, I do a lot of t- I spend a lot of time. There's information in the book as well about how to pick up a crab safely, both for the child and for the crab, um, and how to look after crabs. So I've got an activity that's all about being kind to a crab. Um, but also, you you don't you don't have to pick one up if you no. don't want to and that's always that's always basic rule at any event I do is no you don't have to handle animals in fact it's better for the animals if you don't often so if if you know that there's a bit of distance I think it's all a bit easier to deal with and most most children I don't have ever had anyone who's been too scared to even look at a crab everyone wants to peer at the crabs even if they're a bit scared so um what what I like to work on with kids is really building confidence or managing the confidence as need be. So it's all about showing kids how to how to scoop a crab up just using a bucket or a tub so they don't have to grab at it and potentially hurt the crab, showing if they are going to pick up how to do it properly. But but yeah, I I think most most kids and adults are fascinated and with a bit of time spent familiarizing themselves, most people will actually get pretty close and personal with some crabs by the end. It's they're um they're, they're fabulous little things and they come in all sizes. This is the great thing about crabs on the shore, particularly the, the most common cream shore crab. It breeds on the shore, so there are often lots of really, really crazily tiny crabs yes. which couldn't possibly hurt us. So we, you know, there are different levels of crab. You can start with with the more manageable and, and build up. Absolutely. Well, in uh in Rockpool, I remember you describing uh your caution, your own caution 
of velvet swimming crabs. And I wonder what that was. <laughs> oh, velvet swimming crabs are beautiful. Um, I'm not going to knock them at all. They they have uh, velvety shells, which is where the name comes from. Their shells are covered in lots lots of little sort of hair hair like things, which when you when you touch the back of the shell, it feels very soft and velvety. Um, they have paddles for back legs, which means they can swim fast. And they are very, very effective predators. They're quick. They can swim well. They're very quick with their claws. And that that makes them fascinating to watch and beautiful animals, but rather difficult to pick up because they, they're their favourite thing to do if, if they see a hand coming towards them is to rear up on those back paddle legs, lift their claws up. And as you go to try and reach the back of their shell, they'll push down with their paddle legs, do a big jump and chopstick their claws in to try and try and get your finger. Um, so like like most things on the shore, really, you know, they're best, best, best observed rather than handled too much. Um, but what happens every time I take a group out rock crawling on the shore, of course, some, somebody will scoop a, a velvet swimming crab out up and, and bring it in for everyone to see, which is wonderful because so we can see how a, a crab can swim, which we, we don't really think of crabs as swimming. Sure. Uh, but and but they, they've got these bright red eyes. My son calls them devil crabs, <laughs> bright, bright red eyes. Um, and, yeah, they're, they're the crab that obviously when you're trying to show people what's there, you, I might pick one up to show and and you know i just know that they're going to go for me every time because that's their nature that's what they do and they are very good at it yeah, yeah. well this was drawn towards the end what one question i want to ask you um it's a question i asked elizabeth as well is as a as a beach explorer um yourself is there any particular creature or shoreside experience which is a sort of white whale for you so when i spoke with elizabeth she hadn't at the time ever seen a, an octopus for example um yeah. is there is there anything that in all your years of, of rock pooling of all your years as someone that visits the seaside you've never seen that that you always hope to i i, I have a wish list as you'd expect and um, i i have seen an octopus i have seen an octopus a little tiny octopus little pearled octopus um i am a big fan of mollusks generally um, as most sensible people are and the yeah the octopus was amazing i've seen what we call little cuttlefish a couple of times which are actually bobtailed squid they're tiny tiny little things that look just like cuttlefish I would love to see a full-grown cuttlefish or a squid in a rock pool. I haven't, I haven't achieved that yet, and that that would make me very happy. Any kind of cuttlepod would make me very happy indeed, um, as most things do, as you can tell. But of course, or a seahorse. It's not oh. an invertebrate, but a, a seahorse is also right up there. At the top of the do you list. know what seahorses are? I mean, obviously they're not invertebrates, so I'm dead against them. But seahorses are, they are. <laughs> It's a fish, right? But it's, I've never known, I think it is that, we talked about this the other night, they were on, on Spring Watch the other night, but the animal that seems the most like a fairy tale creature, that seems the most, you know, we often describe animals as being alien, um, but the seahorse isn't alien, seahorse is, it's magical, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, seahorses are just beautiful and um, what you can see really easily in in a lot of rock pools around the uk is something called a pipefish which is a very close relative it's the same group as seahorses and they in the pipefish it's also the male that carries the eggs and gives birth um to the babies and they have their head is the same shape as a, a seahorse's head so that very horsey looking looking snouty head so so yes, they they are they are very strange looking fish. I think they're trying to be invertebrates. It's clearly clearly what they're doing. Well, why wouldn't you want to be? Well Exactly. Have you got any sort of any any parting words for for beach explorers of the future? For any any young people who are excited about going out into nature and experiencing it, just know that it is for you. It's the world is the world is very much ours and you can even if you've grown up in a big city there's no reason why wildlife isn't for you while why beaches aren't for you why you can't make discoveries um 
one of the exciting things about beaches is that you really never know what you're going to find. And literally anybody can discover something new, something unusual. And invariably, when I do get a photo sent to me of a seahorse washed up on a beach or in a rock pool or, or a, a squid or an octopus, it's a child who spotted it, a child who's found it. And my message is that very much that, you know, you, you are an explorer already. If you're a child, you have those powers of observation, which adults are frankly a bit rubbish at, are we, of noticing something that's different, something that's interesting. And those, those powers that you have can be, can be used to make great discoveries on a beach. Well, thank you so much. And if, if anyone wants to, to have access to that toolkit, if anyone wants to discover more about, uh, about the seaside, about the animals that live there, could you uh, just give us that overview of, of where people can find your writing and, and uh, what your writing consists of? Okay, so my my books are Rockpool, which is a nature writing book about the shore, published with September Publishing. And Beach Explorer is for children and is 50 things to see and discover. It's activities, facts, quizzes um, for young people, or you can use it with your family or group or school. Uh, both the books are with September Publishing and are available online from your local bookshop, all the all the usual places. In addition, I keep a blog, which is called Cornish Rockpools, cornishrockpools.com. And on that, I share lots of tips about rock pooling, which would be suitable for anywhere in the country. And I share my finds and animals. And I'm always really excited if anyone wants, there's a contact page on there. If anybody goes rock pooling, having listened to this and finds something that you'd like to tell me about or you'd like it identified, I love hearing from people. And I do all the time. So do, don't hesitate to send me, send me interesting finds from the beach. There's a challenge. Oh, a challenge is a nice way to end. Well, thank you so much for spending time speaking with me today. Uh, the Happy World Oceans Day again. Thanks, Tom. Same, same to you. And and yeah, good, good luck with um, introducing your classes to the, the shore. I certainly will. I'll, I'll let you know how they find the uh, the book. The, the listener doesn't know this, but I'm going to drop off Beach Explorer in the book corner tomorrow. Uh, I'll get back to you on that. Well, thank you so much again. Cheers. Rubbing in the Filth is written and produced by me, Tom Sharp, with music by Will Hatton. And thanks again to Heather Butterbent. You can find Rubbing in the Filth on Twitter at GITF Podcast and Instagram at Rubbing in the Filth. You can also email rubbinginthefilth at gmail.com. Bye.